welcome to another edition of New Books in Intellectual History. I'm your host, Todd Weir. In 1923, a report was delivered to the General Assembly of Scottish Presbyterians, which offered the following argument against continued Irish immigration to Great Britain. God placed the people of this world in families, and history, which is the narrative of his providence, tells us that when kingdoms are divided against themselves, they cannot stand. Those nations, homogeneous in race, were the most prosperous and were entrusted by the Almighty with the highest tasks. Where did the notion come from that God selected or created races for providential roles? One origin was a theory that the world had been inhabited by humans before Adam. The history of this theory, which formed at the intersections of science, religion, and colonial geography, is taken up in Adam's ancestors, race, religion, and the politics of human origins, which has recently been reissued as a paperback by Johns Hopkins University Press. Today is my pleasure to speak to its author, David Livingston, Professor of Geography and Intellectual History at Queen's University, Belfast. David, welcome to the show. Thanks, Todd. So to get us started, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the your bit about your background, what interest brought you to this project? Right, sure. Well, uh, when I began initially to get into intellectual history, I uh, did a study of an American geologist, um, Nathaniel Shaler, who had uh, taught geology at Harvard University in the second part of the 19th century. And he had, um, of course, interest in the earth sciences and the like, but also was fascinated by racial questions. Uh, not least in an era of uh, immigration to the United States and, and things of that sort. So um, after I finished up working on Shaler, I always had this interest in the kind of intellectual history of what you might generally call racial science, um, interface with anthropology and, and so on. Now, as part of that, I came across um, a book um, with a curious title, um, uh, Pre-Adamites by um, another geologist who had worked in the American South called Alexander Winchell. Now, I turned to the final chapter of this book, and it gave a very inaccurate, it turned out, but um, intriguing uh, brief intellectual history of the idea of there being human beings on Earth prior to Adam. Uh, Now, of course, in the American South, you can see that this would have all sorts of um, political potential, um, because it, it could be suggesting that there were um, multiple points of origins for the human race, uh, perhaps an Adamic line from Adam, but perhaps other beings on Earth that were not in that particular uh, lineage. Um, I should just say that Winchell himself did not adopt that multi-creation uh, viewpoint, but he was in a culture where it was uh, certainly widespread. So um, I pursued this just just a little bit. Uh, I mean, as many years ago, uh, back in the, uh, I guess it must have been in the um, in the late 1980s or, or 90s, and wrote a, a little short um, technical monograph, uh, you know, about 90 pages or something, for the American Philosophical Society. Um, uh, but I always felt it was a much bigger story here, and um, a, a story that um, w- would would be bring in many other strands that I um, hitherto been able to uncover. So one afternoon, I'm sitting in in, in Berkeley with Ron Numbers, historian of science, and uh, Ron is editing a new series for Johns Hopkins. And um, we began talking about this, and, and he said to me, you know, that little uh, American Philosophical Society uh, monograph, it was more like, a, you know, like a special issue of a journal. 
you know, was uh, probably buried on the shelves somewhere. He said, what about writing a fuller history of this? And I thought, yeah, why not? And so from that point, it took me quite a few years to get the book finally published in the, um, in the 2000s, now it's been re- reissued. Um, I, I went back to try and tell what I thought would be the whole story. Um, though we're not supposed to have aspirations towards meta-narratives anymore. So I had a go at this. Of course, I haven't told the whole story at all. But that's the genesis um, of the book and um, my own kind of story of how I got there. Very good. Um, What I think is fantastic about this book is the way that you um, examine these conversations between various disciplines, if we can call them that, theology, science in a general sense, but also uh, discovery, climactic thinking, um, politics, and so on. And um, you're, you're, uh, you begin really in, the, in the, um, the age of discovery, right, in the, in the 16th, 17th centuries. And um, you, you introduce us to this interesting figure, Isaac La Perrière, a, 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 a French um, um, man of many talents uh, in an age of uh, where science is, is really just one avenue of, of intellectual pursuit of these type of um, intellectuals. Um, and uh, you introduce him as a, as a heretic. Um, so we're already at the, at the exactly there between religion and, and, um, and science and discovery. Could you tell us a little bit more about La Perere, what his heresy was, um, why he, he turned out to be such a, a sort of pivotal figure in the story. Yeah. Um, well, no, I mean, I, you're right. I do begin with, uh, fundamentally, with um, Perrer. Um, and, and partly, I have to say, that is because um, there had been a historian of um, philosophy, um, uh, Dick Popkin, who had been working on Perrer, and I had been unaware of this, and then he and I got in touch and, and, and so on. Um but, of course, I do have to say, just as a sort of preface to that, Todd, that I'm sure if you go back into uh, the early history of the Church Fathers and the like, and others, you'll find, if you're looking for comparable ideas that were existing, I mean, I think it's Perrer who really gets them on the agenda of the West, and it becomes a much more widespread notion after uh, Perrer. And you're right, it's connected with um, uh, the age of reconnaissance or the age of discovery um, and so on. And um, but that is not uh, separate from um, earlier interesting questions about whether other planets might be inhabited. So um, the notion of the plurality of worlds, <clears throat> excuse me, is already being discussed. And, and when um, uh, Giordano Bruno um, finds himself um, actually executed for being a heretic, his idea that other planets might be inhabited was one of the charges that had been led at him. So there is a link between whether other worlds might be inhabited and the relationship between the different peoples that inhabit uh, this, this, um, uh, this world that we live in. So Perer is reading, um, uh, I think, two things that bring him to this uh, notion. The first one, of course, as you quite rightly say, are, are the voyages of, of exploration. Um, so um, he is finding uh, um, information about other, what I guess we might call ethnic groups, uh, other peoples with uh, markedly, markedly different uh, bodily uh, features and characteristics. 
So um, uh, this leads him uh, uh, to, to ask the question, um, how could it be that uh, these people would have come into being in the short space of time that would be available from a creation in 4004 BC? And uh, by variety of means, he, 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 he thinks that's not possible. Um, so he turns, of course, then to what were known as the pagan chronologies, uh, the writings of, of, of other people's Babylonians and the like, to look at their origin stories. And he finds that many of them are, have a much longer um, history than uh, the standard uh, Judeo-Christian one. So this makes him begin to question whether there may be time before the recorded narratives in the Hebrew Bible. Could there be um, eons of time prior to um, the biblical narrative? So pagan chronology, um, geographical um, discovery, and whilst I'll not get into it here, a bit of sort of fancy um, exegetical footwork that's going on with the Bible itself, where he begins to think that it is composed of sometimes incompatible documents, that it has been uh, brought together by editors of various sorts, ideas that lead to him sometimes being considered um, one of the early founders of biblical criticism, and I guess what would become redaction criticism, and, and so on. So, so it, it comes to this idea, could there be humans before Adam? And he believes that he can find internal biblical evidence that suggests, yes, there were. Now, Heresy. How does he get the heresy? Well, um, uh, it's quite hard to pin down um, exactly what his religious, his own religious viewpoints are. I think the prevailing view now is that he was Jewish, and that he was. He had to, of course, hide his Jewishness and converted or pretended to convert um, to Protestantism. Um, so, if that's the case, that does make sense of a number of things. One is, it makes sense of the idea that he thinks only the Jewish people are the descendants of Adam. All the rest of us who are not Jewish are of non- or pre-Adamic um, sources. So um, uh, part of this was part of a political project um, in the 17th century um, to, um, uh, to find homelands for Jews and uh, uh, um, to try to, to be engaged in a more positive attitude in an era of, of anti-Semitism. But he travels, and um, he travels to um, uh, what is, would now be modern-day Belgium, gets picked up by, I guess, the um, papal policing service, and is taken to Rome and is found um, guilty of this heresy of uh, querying the biblical narrative that all human beings are descended from, from Adam. Of course, the reason for that is that there's a lot of Catholic theology that's bound up with um, Adam as the... Um, um, as the first human uh, original sin, uh, things of this sort. Um, at any rate, he then um, he issues a recantation, but clever devil that he was, he structures it in a way that he never really denies that he thinks that it may have been these other humans prior to Adam. Um, so he spends the rest of his life in Paris um, quietly working on his theory. Um, and uh, uh, the book, of course, had already come out in 1655. Uh, two books, in fact, Pre-Adamites, and then a second one on a theological system based on the idea of pre-Adamic, pre-Adamic humans. Heresy.
this book, you scarcely find anyone that I, that I can find or other historians can find in the 16th, 17th and early 18th century who support the idea, but you find refutation after refutation after refutation. This has led Dick Popkin to the thought that this idea really was much more challenging than the mechanical philosophy, much more challenging than the Copernican revolution, because it is striking at the heart of the identity of the human and the possibility that there might be different, shall we say, different kinds of humans on the face of the earth. That means that the notion of there being a single human nature is quite quickly up for grabs. So I think that takes us roughly to uh, to the Perrier uh, mm-hmm. intervention, uh, I can put it that way. Um, so just moving moving along from Pereira, I mean, Pereira is a, also a geographer, yes. right? He has maps. He's he's very interested in in the location of these various peoples and their movements, and correlates that to time. Um, th- those are obviously key themes in your, in your work: uh, time and and place. Yes. Um, it seems to me that geography has to do both with the locations in which theories are developed, but also with the parallel development of the whole field of, of, um, of geography. And um, you, moving into the 18th century, you pick up uh, now somebody who, in a sense, is arguing against Pereira, um, but nonetheless is working in a very um, geographical framework, and that's Montesquieu. Um, how does Montesquieu fit into the story? Yes. Well, uh, I'll backtrack a little to Pereira's geography first. I mean, he does become an expert on Greenland and Iceland. And um, uh, he uh, constructs some of the early maps um, and so on. And, of course, one of the puzzles is, um, uh, does a place like Greenland actually connect with North America? And um, this is very, very important in um, his cartographic um, uh, ventures and so on because he became as a consequence of, of this geographical work very uh, suspicious that indeed that North America could have been populated from uh, people who lived in Greenland um, so if that was not the case um, he was not aware of the Bering Strait cross, the question then would emerge as, as, it, as it had done for a long time, where did the peoples of the Americas come from? Um, uh, prior to um, Columbus's encounter and the like, where did those people come from? So that's a fundamentally geographical uh, question. Um, so there's geography in this um, from the point of view of um, migration, um, settlement, um, linguistic distributions, um, and, and, and cultural cultural connections. Um, and Pereira thinks of, um, an understudied figure in that story, um, as a matter of fact, but I think he's, he's very important. Geography comes in in another way, and you, you've got it exactly right with, with the era of Montesquieu. Um, because Montesquieu, I think, um, is crucially significant in advancing what might be too crudely called, but I think ha- happily enough called, climatic determinism. Um, so for, um, for Montesquieu, um, he makes the observation um, at, at one point, um, the empire of the climate is the greatest of all empires. Um, now, here's a theory that this is working through um, 
um, it's, 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 it's almost kind of humoral theory, uh, working through um, uh, uh, blood and, and, and things of this sort with heat and cold and, and so on. It can explain uh, incidences of drunkenness. It can explain all sorts of, of things. But crucially, of course, it explains um, uh, culture, uh, legislation, and, 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 and things of that, uh, that sort. But for this debate, I think what's crucially important is that the only option to the notion that human beings were separately created in different places would be to turn to climate as an explanation for somatic differences. Um, so if you weren't going to adopt um, a multiple genesis thesis, a polygenetic account of the human race, if you wanted to maintain a monogenetic single point of origin for the human species, possibly from Adam, but certainly at least from one family, um, climate is your best explanation. It's a geographical um, explanation. And I think that that, in a strange kind of way, means that for a person who wanted to be a biblical literalist, the only way to account for human diversity was to be an evolutionist, because the initial uh, humans obviously evolved under uh, the regime of climate in some way to produce the remarkable racial varieties that um, exist in, in, in the present day. And this became a source of a very, very great debate um, in the 18th century. So, so, it, so we're moving. Like, what I find, again, interesting about your account is, is the way in which you, you examine um, these kind of mutually influencing contexts between disciplines, um, types of discovery that are, that are occurring. So we, we move with your story somewhat from the realm of geography in this, in the 18th century and before, um, into other disciplines in the, in the 19th century or around that time. Um, and there are constantly sort of new challenges brought to this, uh, both to the polygenetic account, but also to the monogenetic account. There's uh, uh, new pressures on this. The question of chronology seems to become incre increasingly important. Um, what, are, what are some of these, these new pressures that are emerging from both the sciences, but also perhaps even politics or sociology uh, in that period between, let's say, the late 18th and the mid 19th century. Well, uh, can I start with the politics one? I mean, I, mean, I think that's a, a particularly interesting one. Um, of course, there are scientific questions, um, and, and we'll get to those perhaps in a minute, but, but let's deal with one of the political ones first of all. So, so in the late 18th century, um, the notion of, um, uh, let's just even say, a plural human species um, with different points of origin begins to attract a few defenders. Um, most of them are pretty tentative about it um, because, um, you know, this is still being refuted in Catholic encyclopedias, you know, as a heresy. I mean, right into the 20th century, you, you can find um, an entry on pre-Adamites. Um, um, I should just say in passing that uh, the notion of pre-Adamites only matters for people who believe that Adam was a single human individual. I mean, you know, so in one sense, it's a sort of conservative debate, the whole, the whole thing. Um, so uh, one figure who flirts with this idea um, is the Scottish jurist Lord Keynes. And uh, in his natural history writings, um, he flirts with the idea, uh, personally I think he really believed it, um, but has a sentence or two in to kind of cover himself because he'd already been involved in some other heresy trial and I think he didn't want to 
and what another one. But uh, anyway, he's suggesting that um, people were made for environments, not that the environments made the people. Right? Uh, so politics. Um, this is picked up in the United States, and it's picked up um, um, very, very, very soon um, after the um, signing of the American uh, Constitution. And um, uh, it's picked up by a man called Samuel Stanhope Smith. Uh, Smith writes what's really the first American anthropology text, and he um, rigorously follows the Montesquieu uh, uh, climatic explanation. So things like climate and then related things, um, diet, culture, habits, things of this sort, he thinks could perfectly well bring into being racial differences which he literally believes are only skin deep. Uh, but when you get to the final pages of uh, Smith's book, the politics come out very, very dramatically. Um, and he attacks Keynes because um, his argument is basically this. If you have multiple origins of, of humans, what you sacrifice is a common human constitution. There'd be multiple constitutions. It's what I said earlier. You sacrifice a common human nature. So here's Smith sitting in the newly born United States looking for where can you find moral authority for your society. You've just overthrown monarchy. Um, you've overthrown inherited privilege. You have overthrown an establishment of religion. The only place that you can look for an appeal to um, um, a, a moral basis on which a society might be able to meaningfully talk about and resolve its political and moral differences is what? A common human constitution. So, um, in a sense, I think that the fear for Smith is precisely a political one. Uh, how are you going to, in fact, he says something like that it would be impossible to govern a society um, composed of people whose natures were, I think it's phrased something like, originally and essentially different, preserving a single human constitution he thought was fundamental to the political governance of particularly a nation like the United States, uh, which progressively would have peoples from all over the world um, uh, inhabiting it. So there's that critical um, political dimension um, uh, uh, to, to the, whole, the whole issue. It gives a political edge, which I think is really um, very significant. Now, there's a second political edge as we move into the 19th century. Uh, I suspect this is Todd, the one that you, you had in mind. Um, particularly in the United States, and this is where geography gets important, anthropology, physical anthropology as a discipline, is beginning now to flourish. Um, flourishing, actually, I think, in some ways, um, earlier uh, for this type of work than in, in Britain. Um, but there are several um, medical doctors, um, uh, anatomists, um, who are working on, um, on the human body and on human racial differences. Josiah Knott's one of them. Uh, George Lydon um, um, is another one, um, um, and uh, uh, Morton is a third. And they link between anthropology and archaeology. By undertaking a huge exercise in the measurement of human racial differences, I mean, things like um, uh, skull shape, um, um, head size, um, 
curliness of hair, um, stature, and, and the like, a lot of these anthropometric uh, measurements, um, they uh, became very convinced that uh, the human races were actually composed of different species. So polygenism gets a very strong hold um, in these um, early 19th century American anthropologists. Very, very much bolstered by a hyper-creationist, Louis Agassiz, who is a Swiss uh, paleontologist um, at Harvard, uh, the leading paleontologist perhaps in America at, at the time, and deeply critical of monogenism and later of, of Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection. So with Agassiz and these um, anthropologists, um, the idea of um, multiple human races gets a very, very firm hold in early American anthropology particularly amongst a number of people in the American South. And you can see, of course, in an era, Antigone America, you can see that at least for a certain number of people, now, of course, it's never hugely shared because the biblical story of Adam has got quite a, quite a hold in the American South. But um, outside uh, that group, um, there seems to be a perfect uh, justification for racial hierarchy. Now, this, of course, is something that Perrier never had in mind. Perrier was using his notion of multiple atoms um, in a humanitarian way. Um, all humanity benefited equally in the story of Adam and um, Adam's great successor, Christ, and the like. But um, in the American South, this did get a, a grip amongst a number of natural historians and a, a variety of, um, um, of institutions because this did give a political justification for notions of superiority, and inferiority, which would be marked by somatic differences, brain size, skull size, um, shape of head, and, and the like. So we're still before Darwin. Yeah. Are, are these polygenesists um, thinking about a, a distant common origin or, or absolute different creations? I suppose they're different views um, on that topic. Yeah, there'll be different views. I mean, um, you could, of course, have uh, polygenesis um, with a recent uh, creation. And in fact, you know, if you needed a, a recent creation, you were going to be very tempted to go for polygenesis. So you would have, roughly speaking, um, a Middle Eastern Adam, um, an American Adam, maybe a Chinese Adam, uh, maybe uh, an Inuit Adam or something of this sort. Because you don't have the when you do that, you don't have to find uh, uh, mechanisms to explain the differentiation in such a short uh, period of time. But, but by the early um, by the early nineteenth century, um, I think that um, uh, now all sorts of ideas are are, are prevailing about a longer Earth history. Um, that uh, indeed um, uh, the, the the Bishop Usher chronology has evaporated a long time. We're now talking about thousands upon thousands of years. Um, and maybe beginning to creep even up into the hundreds of thousands of years. Um, and, and I think that um, actually um, uh, the, the, the group of people that we might, that have been sometimes described as scriptural geologists, uh, those who are saying, you know, the features of the earth uh, were, were really sculpted by an enormous flood, uh, 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 the mosaic flood uh, and the like. And um, I think they're quite a small group. But really, um, I think that many, many, uh, at least in the Christian tradition, um, uh, many people who were uh, literate 
um, uh, but relatively orthodox in their theologies, had already accommodated or were accommodating really well to a long earth history. But the project also, then, for those who believed in a longer history of the earth, um, uh, Lyndon, not in the like, and, and so on, who are much less tied to the Bible in, in any case, um, the arguments that they're putting forward now is that um, uh, racial features are long-lasting and are deeply persistent. So um, uh, they go back, for example, even to the period of the Greeks, and they find um, hieroglyphics and they find um, uh, um, drawings of one sort or another that um, seem to show, shall we say, precisely the same racial differences that were still visible in their in their own time. So the notion of um, fixity of uh, uh, certain features is, is very deeply embedded in at least this early stage of the polygenist, uh, polygenist movement. Um, and, and I think that um, and e- even people like um, Agassiz, who has a very strong doctrine of divine creation um, in a kind of transcendentalist Germanic natu-philosophy, I mean, I mean, I guess almost Unitarian um, um, kind of a way. I mean, um, he's not thinking that the Earth is only 6,000 years old. I mean, he's, he's a paleontologist and so on. But he thinks that these features are deep, um, uh, historically deep, uh, long-lasting, persistent. And, and so he's really thinking about a world that, that is, if I could coin the word, fixist r- rather than dynamic. Um, so I think you could have a short, uh, believe in a short Earth history, believe in a long Earth history, and still be equally committed to this notion of, of um, um, the, the persistence of species with persistent differences. The, um, in, in, in this chapter where you're talking about the, um, um, these, you call them harmonizing strategies um, that are developed, essentially the, the, the pre-atomism emerges as a, as a, a way of trying to harmonize um, scripture with discoveries in science in the 19th century. Um, and, and I think you, you make an interesting methodological point there about the relationship of science and religion. Um, there's a tendency in hindsight from the 20th century, say, to, to, to perceive this relationship as somewhat one-sided, that, yeah. that, that theology has to accommodate science. The science does not have to accommodate theology. Um, you have a, have a different take and, and looking really, I suppose, at the, the historical impact of these harmonizing strategies, um, you make an interesting point about how the harmonizing strategies go back and feed back into both sides of the equation, yeah. into the science and into theology. Yeah. And you have a nice little few sentences. I just yeah. want to quote because sure. I think they're, they're very good. Um, so this is the quotation. Designed as they are to retain continuity between scientific discovery and theological beliefs, in fact, these harmonizing strategies are mutually transformative. They alter both the scientific and the theological architecture of their patrons. Reconciling schemes are not to be thought of as neutral, disinterested joints holding together two limbs, or simply as bridges between two independent domains. They are, rather, more like a solvent that dissolves two substances to produce a new compound. Um, I'm thinking about the term that uh, Stephen Jay Gould used of non-overlapping magisteria to describe, I think this is a normative um, understanding of the relationship of science and religion, that they have their domains, they don't overlap, or they shouldn't, uh, in his view. Um, And your take is, is quite different as a historian, at least. Yes. Um, 
Uh, could you say a bit more about that? Uh, sure. Yeah. That there are idea? things to say, say about that. I mean, um, uh, let, let, let's start with, with um, why I, at least historically, um, don't find, um, uh, I mean, uh, Gould's uh, observation, a useful historical strategy. I mean, and that might be Gould's view that they ought not to overlap or that in overlapping where they do, they're violating some epistemic propriety or something of that sort. Um, but, I mean, uh, so um, I pick up a book um, by William Darrell in, in, in uh, the 17th century, say, or 18th or whatever it is. And um, so I read here about uh, the way in which um, organisms are adapted to their environments. And he elucidates in some detail how that's the case. Um, and um, so you read this book, you'll learn a great deal of, of natural history um, about adaptiveness of um, features of, of organisms to fit them to the environment within which they find themselves. Um, now, on any sort of reasonable understanding, you would consider that, I guess, ecology, which is exactly what ecology does. The book is called Natural Theology. So my question is, is this a work of science or, or is it a work of theology? Or is that the wrong question to ask? I mean, what we have here is a work which has, um, uh, uh, at the one, one and the same time, the author believes he is um, doing theology and finding out about the world. So asking him, you know, about uh, Noma, is it non-overlapping magisteria? I think Darren wouldn't understand, uh, you know, what, what really you're, you're talking about. So, so Steve might well um, have um, conceived of this as a way of dealing with what I would call the late 20th century culture wars, whether it really does much work for periods at least before the 20th century, um, I'm not sure at all. And in fact, I think it's an open question um, as to whether or not uh, you can map the boundaries of these domains clearly anyway, because um, I'm fairly fairly, uh, persuaded of uh, the arguments of um, uh, the the philosopher W.B. Galley, who, 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 who argues that there are certain ideas that are essentially contested in other words, you can't come up with a set of stipulations about what they're going to be. And science and religion are exactly those. I mean, which of us can define exactly what religion is and then, you know, draw a boundary around it or the same for science. So, so that's to just take up the, the, the good point. Um, can, I, can I make uh, two points about this sort of way? I've been thinking about it. Um, um, uh, one that perhaps you haven't mentioned, then I'll get to the one, Todd, that you have. Um, uh Harmonizing strategies, of course, um, of course, I, can either be successful or can fail. Uh, they either persuade people that they are good harmonizing strategies or, or they're not. And what's interesting about this one is, it strikes me, that it begins as heresy. Uh, we said at the beginning that Pereira is conducted to Rome and recants and, uh, and the like. If the century people are really tentative about this, um, it, it's regarded wild, widely as um, a compromising of uh, the biblical documents. But progressively in the 19th century, more and more people advance it, not to, not to subvert the traditional um, uh, biblical understanding, uh, but as a harmonizing strategy that becomes more and more acceptable to more and more people that you might think of as very, very orthodox. So, I mean, I, I found it defended, for example, very strongly in the early 20th century 
by um, by one person, uh, name is actually going to escape me now, but one person who was very involved with the American evangelist D.L. Moody. Now, to move from something that was heretical to get this sort of um, rubber stamp of what you might think of as early 20th century fundamentalism shows that you can have a trajectory from heresy to orthodoxy with precisely the same, the same idea. Now the solvent, which is, I think, where you, um, you want to get to. Um, so um, so uh, you're a person um, interested in um, uh, human origins, and you're interested in uh, the scientific question, um, whether humans emerged in one place, um, and are we all descended uh, from them? Um, could humans have been created in different places? Um, and uh, what way does descent, descent work? So that's the scientific question. Uh, it seems to me this is a perfectly good scientific question. Um, uh, so, but you also have religious beliefs. And you're trying to reconcile, with whatever way the science turns out, you're trying to reconcile theology with the science, and you're also trying to make your science coherent with your with your theology. Um, so let's just say you opt for um, the view that uh, human beings emerged or were created or came into being at different points across the face of the earth so that all human beings are not descended from a single a single lineage. Um, so I think that that has theological consequences. Um, uh, it, it has theological consequences for example, uh, for um, if you're in the Christian tradition, for um, the standard notion about original sin, particularly if you're a Catholic. Uh, so for Catholics, um, uh, original sin is passed on by inheritance from uh, our first parents, if you like, through to um, uh, through to all one of us, uh, every one of us. Well, how does that happen in a plural system? So then some theologians reply saying, ah, well, original sin doesn't work that way. Um, there was um, one historic Adam, um, and that fall from grace um, actually um, was one w- which you have to understand as um, acting in a representative way for all humanity. You don't need literal descent. But uh, the action of uh, the Adamic family would be acting in um, in a federal way as representing um, all humanity. So, so what I'm saying here is you've adopted a scientific thesis and now you're doing some theology in order to try and work out the implications of this. It may have implications then for um, a person in the Christian tradition for their Christology. Um, uh, in the New Testament, um, uh, you might get references to... Um, Jesus Christ as the, the second Adam. Uh, do all the other um, uh, non-Adamic peoples need to have their own saviour and so on? So, and it would be exactly the same for plurality of worlds. So uh, here's a way in which buying into a thesis about origins will have implications for which uh, theology you take, but it's also going to have implications for how you understand um, how human diversity comes about. Are you going to turn to climate? Are you going to think that um, human difference is deeply innate? Um, um, is it something that we could have control over? Um, is it something that we ought to have control over? Or, um, and so on. So um, it just strikes me that when you adopt a particular scheme, it's doing scientific work 
and is doing theological work for the person at the same time. So it's not just as simple as saying, listen, two separate realms here. The, the, the strategy that you opt for will have implications for the explanatory alignments that you're going to take on your empirical work, and it will have implications for the way in which at least certain theological propositions have to be perhaps nuanced or transformed, maybe abandoned or even reinforced. Great. And the, the point at which you introduced this idea fits in precisely into this early 19th century period where we're still talking about a period in which natural philosophy is considered part of the, of the scientific project. Uh, potentially even natural theology. Um, But but there is, as you describe in the book, I mean, even though there is this this, uh, mutual influence of the the fields throughout history, nonetheless, there is a major change in the mid-19th century. Um, There is this growing disentanglement, I I suppose, despite mutual interactions of the fields. You You talk about the professionalization of science. Another point, you talk about the secularization of science. Um, and it's probably no coincidence that uh, Darwin's theory emerges in the mid-19th century and is part of that, um, that change. Now, this, this creates a different playing field for the theories about pre-atomism, doesn't it? And, um, yeah. Um, well, uh, first of all, um, well, there's three, three separate things um, here. One, one, of course, is the significance of Darwin's theory uh, right off, and we'll maybe Maybe you want to return to that. So I'll leave that just aside for a minute. I don't know if you want to turn. I mean, that makes a big difference here, a massively, uh, massive difference in all sorts of ways. So we should return to it. And uh, this is a period where there is the um, uh, professionalization of science, and then you connect it up with secularization. <clears throat> secularization is a very tricky term here, of course. <clears throat> you know more about that, Todd, than I do, um, given, given your own work. Um, but one of the things that I think a way that I like to maybe uh, uh, refer to this more is um, the naturalization of vocabulary. Now, why I say that is, I'm mean, just taking anthropology uh, as an example. It, it professionalizes increasingly. So, um, um, it, if we're talking about the 1850s, 1840s, 50s, um, there is in Britain um, an ethnological society, ethnological society of Great Britain. And um, it had a kind of humanitarian, uh, Quaker sort of background to it, um, following the uh, perspective of people like uh, Pritchard, for example, who was a major anthropologist at the time. Um, And when you read it, um, uh, I I went back reading, looking for, does the name Adam appear? And of course it does. Um, Even the word um, Adam's race um, Adamic, uh, this, that, and the other. So um, uh, there is what Bob Young would have called a kind of common context for the practice of, of science at, uh, at the time. Uh, and of course, um, and in a sense, Darwin was perhaps part of this. Um, a lot of natural history um, is carried out in, in this era by, by Parsons, uh, you know, and, and Darwin might have headed, you know, for for the life of being a parson naturalist if he, if he hadn't, you know, headed on in the legal voyage in the 1830s and, and that. Um, so, uh, but then, uh, then you get um, a less humanitarian and more um, more. If I say scientific, you know, I mean, be careful using using that word here. But when the anthropological society comes in uh, to being, it's it's rather more. Um, 
uh, and this might be an anachronistic word, but racist. And um, it, it, it takes a tougher polygenetic line. And um, now I get to the naturalization of vocabulary. Very, very few references to um, Adam, Adamic peoples, uh, and so on. Now, does, whether that means that uh, progressively people don't believe in the Adamic picture or whether it's no longer the right vocabulary to use in a scientific uh, journal um, raises the question of the relation between naturalization of vocabulary and secularization um, um, I, you know, as, a, as, a, as a sort of reality uh, uh, or, or whatever. Um, so um, uh, the whole thing becomes um, progressively um, scientized and instrumentalized. Um, so uh, a whole range of um, uh, more sophisticated uh, measurements uh, are, are taken, and specially constructed instruments um, come into being. Anthropometric laboratories to measure racial differences and human differences um, come into being. There was one, for example, in Dublin um, that was uh, very active in um, in uh, measuring semantic differences, and um, that has persisted right up to the present day. I, I mean, you know, now people want to uh, get their own um, DNA tested in order that they can see what their lineage was, uh, what part of the world they came from, what ethnic group they might be associated with, um, um, and so on. And, and I guess that whole project uh, takes place outside the framework of, of um, what I was looking at here, this science-religion notion of um, Adam and a pre-Adamic, uh, pre-Adamic world. Um, but uh, that is definitely part of the history of um, a fascination with uh, measuring human bodies and the way in which identity is bound up with um, uh, the physical body and identity is bound up with a sense of one's history. So uh, I think that uh, in this sense, um, uh, uh, genetics and genealogy actually belong in this story uh, quite closely together. So and those would be a few thoughts about that yeah. dimension. I don't know if you want to return to the Darwin. Well, let's 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 talk about Darwin because um, you know, obviously, in a period of natural philosophy, um, as in philosophy in general, the room for speculation is very great, mm-hmm. and you can have many competing. Um, theories, whereas with with Darwin, uh, certainly you know his 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 great German advocate Ernst Haeckel believed that he finally had the key to unlock his own natural philosophy. There was no longer going to be any question about the, whether or not this particular uh, philosophical yeah. view of science was true. Um, and, and I would I would guess that many people by the eighteen seventies came to a similar opinion, um, that we had sort of crossed a boundary into a new realm of, of certainty when it came to these questions about origins and lineages. Yeah. Um, how does that change your, the story here? Well, I mean, that is a re- really interesting and very, very large que- question. Um, so, Todd, I'll sort of nibble around the edges of it, and then you can bring me back onto the track. <laughs> I'm wandering at, um, too far away. Um, so, um, several things. First, um, I mean, uh, you mentioned you mentioned, uh, mentioned Ernst Haeckel, um, and uh, uh, Haeckel is is, is a great um, advocate of uh, what he calls Darwinismus, um, and and the great uh, German uh, advocate. Um, but of course, uh, there are profound differences here too, and, and one of them is, is is on exactly the topic we're talking about, because Haeckel 
uh, without any religious concerns, uh, much that I can see, um, is a very strong advocate of polygenism. Um, um, a very strong advocate of different human races. Whereas Darwin is usually considered as conventionally considered as a person who really uh, is the death knell for polygenism because not only are all of us uh, monogenetic but we're all actually probably from just one or two um, pre-human um, organisms uh, and so on. Um, never mind the tricky uh, subtitle of The Origin of Species which is about the preservation of favoured races um, in, in the struggle for life. But there's no doubt he introduces... Um, um, something that's quite quite new. Um, so what's Darwin's project um, really about here? Um, he, he does mention the creator um, in, in The Origin of Species. Then later he writes letters to say that he was only, and I think his phrase is, truckling into public opinion when he put uh, creator in. So he slithers backwards and, and, and forwards. But, but, but what he's at least doing here is um, destabilizing many of the central notions that have been part of the um, uh, debate. Uh, one is that this is no longer a fixist world um, um, universe. Um, dynamism, transformation <coughs> is part of this. Um, it's one in which the human is rolled into um, the history of all the rest of life. Um, rolled into, um, shall we say, nature um, in, 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 that, in that broad sense. So some particular stories. Okay, so um, in one sense, um, you can understand, if we go back to the American South, you can understand that um, insofar as the South might be considered a biblically literalist culture, um, there wouldn't have much time for Ch Charles Darwin. And that's absolutely right. Um, there's a famous case which I'm writing about in another another book um, about Woodrow Wilson's uncle, uh, James Woodrow, who was dismissed from his position in South Carolina for advocating evolution or even talking about it much um, to his students at the Columbia uh, Presbyterian Seminary. Um, but what about the more, what about the less orthodox, if I can put it that way? What, what about um, the Knott and Glidens and the anthropologists? Well, well they abominated. Darwin, because on one step backwards, um, uh, blacks and whites become brothers and sisters. I mean, they're just 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 minor differences, and um, and so uh, Darwin in the American South, very different from New Zealand, but Darwin in the American South is is rejected because it would be seen to undermine the notion of um, uh, human species that could be used to justify um, uh, a, political, a political system. Um, so uh, we now know from the work of people like James Moore and Adrian Desmond, the argument is that a huge motivating force in all that Darwin did was the fact that he came from an abolitionist family. Um, he uh, also experienced firsthand the horrors of um, certain types of slavery in South America. And it's for this reason that he became a strong supporter of um, missionary societies, um, particularly in the South Pacific, trying to stamp out um, slavery um, of one sort or another. Does this make Darwin a modern egalitarian? Well, of course it doesn't. Um, uh, Darwin believes that there are superior and um, inferior um, uh, peoples, 
um, and that uh, as the processes of evolution would, uh, uh, would take on, certain groups would dominate over others in the human world in just exactly the same way that certain animals do, uh, invader species in the, um, in, in, in the subhuman world and so on. But he introduces into this a new dynamic about um, a world that's much less stable, that in one sense, if there are hierarchies, there's nothing that is eternal or fixed about those. They may undergo transformation. Because what animates this whole thing is adaptation to environment, adaptation to environment. What suits an environment at one time might be deleterious in another one. And I think that introduces a world that's much less certain, uh, progressivist, and stable, and, and so on. So it sort of transforms uh, the debate. But for, the, for those religious people who still retain the significance of Adam as a theological postulate, um, the pre-Adamites now can become an, a reconciling tool for a new problem, that is, human origins problems in the Darwinian mode. Um, argument, the pre-Adamites might have been almost human. They are um, hominids, but they're not fully human. And um, in the early 20th century, many efforts were, were made to try to say something, something like this. Um, um, if we think of um, Homo sapiens, or Homo sapiens sapiens, being um, uh, exemplified, in uh, groups like Cro-Magnons. Um, should we think of the Cro-Magnons as Adamic and their predecessors, the Neanderthals, as pre-Adamites? So here you have the Adamites being roughly the modern human. Why is it important to preserve this uh, 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 among certain religious groups? Well, um, uh, for this reason, there's a theological significance to Adam. So you think of um, uh, the human race as, in theological terms, uh, uh, one theologian called uh, this, um, the human being is not so much homo sapiens, but homo divinus, you know, a, a divine creation. That's Adamic. The pre-Adamites were not fully human creatures, but are subhuman hominids, which enables a reconciliation, as many did in the 20th century, early 20th century, with um, evolutionary anthropology. Does that begin to scratch around? Yeah, no, it's fantastic. Well, I was just thinking about, you, you know, I'm very interested in Ernst Haeckel. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, well, Haeckel... You know much more about than I do. <laughs> well, Ernst Haeckel had this, uh, you know, introduced a lot of vocabulary into uh, science, biology, words like ecology. Yeah. Um, some terms that he used that probably didn't originate with him, but were, were current in his time, was the idea of the uh, culture peoples and nature peoples yeah. as a way of differentiating between uh, Europeans and the rest. Yeah. Um, so essentially, Europeans bore culture, yeah. And the rest were part of nature. Yeah. Um, and, and you could see how even though Heckel um, denied Christianity and yeah. all of the biblical accounts, um, nonetheless, his ideas could be could fit quite well with what you're describing as the kind of um, the idea that chosenness for a certain race appears um, in recent history on top of a long history of evolutionary development. Um, yeah. as a sort of divine intervention. With Heckel, it's not divine, but, but there still is a notion, there's a notion of chosenness, that there's, there's yeah. a, you know, through the kind of Lamarckian ideas about how culture and biology interact, mm -hmm. this, this idea that certain races 
became bearers of culture and that culture that they bore helped them develop biologically into superior creatures. So their brain size would have you know, improved and all this. Um, so Heckel could justify European imperialism based on this notion that the bearers of culture were essentially um, the avant-garde of the evolutionary process. Yeah. Um, and they were doing, bringing not just culture, but what is culture? Culture is self-consciousness of nature of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that they had, they had a mission, they were chosen. They had, and it's, there's a lot of analogies really. I think there are analogies. <clears throat> they work, they work very well. I mean, uh, for example, um, in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, as as uh, people in the Christian church are making these kind of accommodations or whatever. And I mean, one of the things that becomes uh, pretty clear um, is that they want to make an argument that um, when you read the Genesis narrative, um, already um, the Adamic family are doing agriculture. Um, they uh, uh, are already interrogating nature, you know, for the application of a culture, in this case, an agriculture and so on, which would exactly differentiate them from those who are closer to nature um, and who are much more part of nature. So, I mean, um, I don't think, I think you're quite right. To see this distinction, um, it doesn't have to be given a kind of um, religious gloss or theological gloss. Um, and, and, And in the Christian tradition, of course, this absolutely could be used and was used, I think, I mean, I know a huge amount about this, for imperial purposes as well. I mean, you just have a theological layering um, uh, on the top of this to be the bearers of culture to those who are um, much more almost enslaved um, to nature, never mind enslaved to natural passions and um, and so on. So I, I think that, I think there are analogues there that, that uh, you suggested the distinction isn't just a religious one, you know, but, but it's a much, much wider um, uh, kind of uh, mentalité uh, about thinking about the human's place in the natural order. As we move sort of into the 20th century um, in your book, you, you then discuss um, notions by uh, racists. You focus, I think, particularly on American thinkers in this regard. Um, this... Um, notion that the, this theory of pre-atomism or pre-atomites um, has certain consequences for the relation of races today. I'm talking 1900 or even potentially today. Yes. But uh, um, in terms of, of racist thinking, um, how do they make that argument that, um, that pre-atomism has a moral lesson when it comes to the relation of the races in America in the year 1900? Well, I thought you were going in a slightly different direction, and maybe, maybe I'm not um, quite getting this, but I mean, in the 20th century, of course, well, and I suppose you could say 1900 as well, um, but on into the 20th century, let me say two things. Um, uh, one is that there is, um, in America, um, uh, in the late 19th century, a series of viciously uh, racial um, uh, works of propaganda that uh, lead to a number of um, um, really, as I said, you know, vicious disputes. Um, because um, one of these is that um, to the extent that you make um, a marriage between pre-Adamites and a pre-hominid group, um, 
there were uh, a number of people who were li- use, using this theory literally to dehumanize African-Americans, uh, dehumanizing them by saying that um, uh, African-Americans are pre-Adamic, therefore do not have um, certain of the um, spiritual, and maybe psycho-spiritual features that um, Adam and Adam's success, uh, um, successors uh, do possess. Um, you're, so, so some were going so far as to rule African-Americans outside the arc of what the human was, literally bestializing with um, some very, very vicious and, and, and vitriolic um, uh, language. Um, as I say, this is, a, this is a stunning departure from Pereira's original use. It shows how, how remarkably versatile this quite simple idea is. You say, I mean, Adam's not the first man, there are people before him. It, it, it can go in all sorts of, it goes viral in all sorts of directions. Um, raises another interesting um, question about when um, when those of us who do historical work are writing about groups of this sort, um, how should we write about them? Um, to what extent um, should we make moral judgments? Um, is our task to understand the, shall I say, vicious other, to understand them or to um, castigate them? Where this became really uh, tricky for me was the perpetuation, even more tricky for me was the perpetuation of these ideas in the late 20th century. Um, shall I say just a little Yeah, yeah, because there's, there's a couple of words about that. that. Uh, so, um, I'm sitting one um, afternoon at my laptop, or desktop, I think perhaps it was, um, coming near uh, the end of my research for this book, and um, I go on to a network um, that has um, hooks into many second-hand news bookstores uh, around the world, and I think, look, just type in pre-Adamite to see what happens. It spat out at me um, something like 10 books that I'd never heard of before. I mean, I thought I was becoming an expert in this, and I thought, I've got to track these down. Um, so I tracked them down, and they all came from a single bookstore in Missouri. Um, and uh, they were all talking about pre-Adamites, and they were talking about polygenesis, um, and so on. And these were published in the 19... 19- 90s, 2000, and, and so on. It turned out that they were um, books um, advocating forms of pre-Adamism from um, the very far right. Um, uh, a clan, uh, neo-Nazi um, uh, group, and so on. Um, so I, I tentatively ordered a few of these online, wondering if, I, if I'd be safe doing so. But, or, but they turned out to be just little pamphlets, often run off um, locally and so on. Um, with, with, with really um, uh, you know, nauseating um, racism um, and um, uh, justifying uh, all sorts of uh, uh, things, bestializing uh, people and so on. Uh, but I then discovered also this group are reprinting some of the 1900s works that had already been talking about um, and claiming these people, I mean, including Winchell, whom I mentioned earlier on, his pre Adamite books, and uh, a man called Carol, and, and, and so on, um, uh, 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 reprinting these for contemporary political purposes. Um, and then that raised a different moral dilemma about um, how do you write about that vicious other in one's own day? Um, so um, this was quite um, surprising to me, but but showing that 
pre-atomites uh, have this stunning um, uh, capacity to survive in certain environments. Maybe Darwin would say they're adapted to certain environments, um, but but um, still amongst certain um, uh, far-right extremist, uh, probably militaristic groups, um, these ideas still have a stunning sort of cachet um, right up to the present day. Great. Well, um, I guess that is a good summary word on the, um, on, on this book, but I would just be interested for in, if you could just maybe in a, in a few moments, tell us about uh, something you're working on now. Yeah. Um, well, well, thanks for the chance to do that, Tom. Um, well, I just finished um, um, a book, which um, <clears throat> is going to be the, um, uh, the theme of uh, the Gifford lectures that I'm giving in a few weeks time called um, dealing with Darwin. Uh, and this book is is looking at um, the same uh, uh, no uh, uh, um, Presbyterian uh, readers of Darwin in different locations, um, uh, American South, uh, North United States, Britain, and so on, um, and looking at fairly specific uh, communities to see what do they make of Darwin. Uh, the conventional way to approach this would be to assume that this is a story about science and religion. And, of course, it is a story about science and religion. Um, but what, what, uh, what turns out to be the case is that in every one of these cases, the way they dealt with Darwin and the dealings they, did, they, they engaged in with Darwin um, were much more a product of their local cultural politics than anything that was to do with um, sharing the same theology. They all share the same theology, the same theology, but they deal differently with Darwin. Mm -hmm. My question was why? Um, and in every case, um, what looks like a, a, a science, religion, Christianity, evolution dispute turns out to be really a surrogate for something else. It's a vehicle for channeling other kinds of anxieties, whether they be about identity, um, whether they be about race, um, uh, whatever they may be, um, uh, who's going to control education and, and, and so on. So it's to kind of say we've got to dig underneath what, what, what appears on the surface as a science-religion dispute to, to figure out um, what, what's going on. So you know, I'm looking at the three concepts, place, politics, and rhetoric. In these uh, in these disputes, so that's one that I'm just sort of about finishing up. Uh, now, the, the one I'm supposed to be working on um, is uh, a book that I'm going to entitle, which connects with some of the things we've been saying uh, using Montesquieu, "The Empire of Climate." Um, and uh, what I'm interested in in this book, um, if I ever get around to finishing it, is um, the notion that, in some profound way the human has been inexorably shaped by climate. Uh, it takes two forms. This One is I want to do um, an intellectual and social history of the idea of climatic determinism uh, from the ancient world up to our own day. Um, uh, many people, of course, have refuted this over the years, going back you know, from Herodotus and um, Hippocrates um, up through uh, Falconer and uh, Montesquieu, um, Ellsworth Huntington, and so on. Um, but what I think gives this um, more of a bite in our own day is is this um, uh, issues about climate change. 
And what I'm finding here is uh, alive and well, what I'm calling climate change determinism. So, okay, we have changed the climate through um, various anthropogenic means. Um, but the great fear is that climate is not going to punish us. So um, I'm amazed at the degree to which climatic determinism of an old sort has been resurrected in an era of um, rightly fears about, about climate, uh, climate change. I mean, just one example maybe is, is, is all I need to, um, uh, to do here. Historically, there was uh, a long sense of um, people feeling that uh, temperament um, and um, temper, temperament traits um, could be very uh, significantly uh, um, modified or determined or conditioned by, by climate, particularly, say, violence. Um, certain environments uh, would uh, um, produce people that were much more violent. Um, even certain, certain weather uh, at a time of, time of year might people, make people more prone to, to violence and so on. Um, but that notion about climate and violence is now, I think, a very scary way, surfacing amongst national security agencies who think that climate change is going to bring war. Um, it might be, it's not going to work through psychology this time, but what it's going to say is, well, once you get climate change, um, you're going to get climate migrants. Once climate migrants come across the borders, we better get ourselves prepared now for warfare. So I'm interested in um, the kind of intellectual genealogy of an idea like that that um, is now dominating uh, governments. And if there's climate change, we better get prepared for aggression, we better get prepared for war, and so on. And uh, I think I want to be critical of this. Um, I mean, not overly critical, but what is it that uh, humans have persistently felt that in some crucial way our fate reduces to climate. In one sense it seems quite a silly idea. On the other hand, it, it seems to me to be remarkably alive and well. Whether you're thinking about global economics, whether you're thinking about human um, health um, and so on, whether you're thinking about warfare, uh, whether you're thinking about human origins, in so many of these arenas, um, when you trace it back, ultimately you're getting back to a climatic explanation. And I'm kind of interested why that should be the case. Well, sounds like a fantastic book. I look forward to reading that. We'll see. <laughs> so thank you very much for giving us so much of your time. And uh, hopefully we'll have a chance for another conversation in the future. Well, thanks for the conversation. I've enjoyed it, Todd, and I hope your listeners do as well. Thank you. Cheers.